0: We're going to be looking at the Church of Philadelphia this morning in the book of Revelation. It is known as the Church of the Open Door. And we really believe that uh, the Dungan is an open door that God has given Waterstone an opportunity to further his gospel across the world. So we're very committed. what Rick and Sue and the team over there is doing, and uh, really do want to encourage you to pray for them. We're kind of partners with them in what's going on over there. This morning, we're going to look at uh, Revelation chapter 3, so if you have a Bible, you take it with me. We're going to look at verses 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true. Who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And he, what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. and know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we would uh, hear this morning what you have to say to us as Waterstone so that we may be faithful in how we live out our obedience to you and that this this passage and these truths would grab a hold of us deeply uh, so that we might serve You better. We pray this in the name of Jesus and we pray it for his sake. Amen. Max Lucado, in his book, Eye of the Storm, tells the story of Chippy the Parakeet. Evidently, uh, Chippy's owner was trying to clean out his cage with a vacuum cleaner, wasn't paying attention, and uh, sucked Chippy up into the vacuum got really scared, turned it off, ripped it, uh, it open, ripped the bag open, and there was Chippy. Traumatized, but alive. He was covered from head to bird toe with uh, dirt and dust. She didn't know what to do, so she took him into the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and kind of washed him off. <laughs> the only problem was, is now Chippy was shivering, and... Uh, she thought, well, I, I got to dry him. So she grabbed her hairdryer and blasted him <laughs> with hot air until he was dry. The next day, one of her friends called to check on how Chippy was doing. And she said, well, he doesn't sing much anymore. <laughs> he just kind of sits there and stares. I think sometimes we feel like that. We get traumatized a bit, beat up a bit, abused a bit by the world. And as a result, we don't sing much anymore. We just kind of sit there and stare. We, we live in a world um, that is, from our perspective, not going well. We live in a world that seems to be falling apart. And people are frustrated with that, nervous with that, angry with that. I think that is part of what is happening in terms of the political context we, we, we live in. I think that's why we see some of the anger that we see is because the world is changing. And lots of people don't like that. I, I sat down and jotted down some of the things in terms of how the world's changing. The world is becoming a more broken place. It's becoming more secular. Christians no longer are the cultural majority. The culture is moving farther and farther away from a worldview rooted in Christian assumptions. The profane is more and more acceptable. Marriage is up for grabs. Sexuality is up for grabs. Gender is up for grabs. Religion is up for grabs. Family is being redefined. Radical autonomy and individualism rules the day. Relativism is king. Tolerance is the highest value. The notion of God is being excluded and rejected from the public square. Even the church is infected with an anti-intellectual bent, an over-sentimental approach, a rampant narcissism, a kind of selfishness whose primary concern is what isn't for me. So I think there are lots of believers who feel a lot like Chippy. They don't know what to do. So how do we respond when we live in a world that's falling apart? Do we become like the Essenes? You remember the Essenes was that kind of cultish group in Jesus' day that were so frustrated with what was going on in the Roman culture that they just thought they had to escape. So they went to the desert and they set up their own little community so they could be safe and pure. Is that what we do? Do we disengage? Or do we go to the other extreme? The other extreme were the zealots, right? These were the guys who were so frustrated with what was going on in the culture that, that they wanted revolution. Even if it was violent revolution, they had to, to kick the Romans out and usher in the kingdom. Is that what we do? Or, or perhaps is there a more subversive third Alternative, a third way that is more centered in the gospel and more reflective of the kingdom? How do we live in a world falling apart? We have been working our way through the book of Revelation, and we decided early on to spend more time on the first three chapters which deal with these letters that Jesus gives to the churches of that day. Uh, we're gonna finish that up next week and then the week after, in preparation for Thanksgiving, have a service of worship focused kind of around some of the themes from Revelation. Then we're gonna launch into Advent. After Advent, the beginning of the year in January, We're going to do a series called The Art of Life 2. We did this last year and just talks about skills that we need to incorporate in our lives to live out our faith well. And then, beginning in February, we're going to jump back into the book of Revelation, only we're going to speed it up. We're going to cover chapters 4 through 22 in the next nine weeks so that when Palm Sunday comes, we're focused on Palm Sunday and Easter People have wondered, you know, you guys are spending so much time with the first three chapters. How about all the good stuff? Well, we're getting to the good stuff. I'm not sure how good it is going to be. Um, we have some questions, but we're getting there. It's just when we're in that stuff, we're going to go really fast. So, um, so, so, so that, is, that is coming. One of the issues, and one perhaps the biggest issue that all these churches faced that Jesus is speaking to, centered around this question of how do you operate in a world that is so broken? All of these churches were under incredible pressure to cave to the culture. Uh, Religiously, they operated in a very pagan atmosphere and the pressure was on to join in to the idolatry of the day. Economically, Uh, The pressure was on to join these guilds, the trade guilds that you had to be part of to make a living, but they were engaged in these religious practices as well, so that was tough. And even politically, I mean, the pressure was on them to declare allegiance to Caesar, and yet they worshipped a different king. So they were wrestling with this question all of the time. And most of the rebukes that Jesus gives to these churches have something to do with how they're compromising in some way or not living out their faith well in light of the culture around them. But in two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, Jesus doesn't give a rebuke. Um, In fact, he's really positive. And I think part of that reason is they're doing a good job. This church we're gonna look at this morning, Philadelphia, is is doing it well. And so I think what Jesus is going to do with them is give them some encouragement. And I think in the process of the encouragement he gives them, he gives us some incredible insight, what I might call keys, on how to live in a world that's falling apart. There's gonna be three of them this morning. Um, that come from his words to this church. How do we live in a world falling apart? I think the first thing we must do is remember who Jesus is. We tend to forget. Look at verse 7 with me. Um, Jesus is speaking here, and he's describing himself. And it's absolutely fascinating to see how he describes himself. He, He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him, Jesus, who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. Now, when he says he's holy and true, he's actually picking up words that are used in the Old Testament to describe God or Yahweh there. And he's identifying himself with the Old Testament God. And he's first saying, Look, I'm holy, and this notion of holiness. Uh, We like to think of it in terms of Jesus that he was sinless and Jesus was sinless, but I don't think that is the issue he's picking up here. When he talks about holiness and identifying it with the Old Testament concept, it's this notion that he is set apart, that God was was wholly other, that he was completely apart and transcendent from his creation. And, And the notion is because of that, he was the one who was supreme. And Jesus is saying, I'm the holy one. I, I, I'm the totally other. I'm the supreme one. And not only that, I am true. Now, that could mean that he's genuine. Uh, he's the real deal. The synagogue was saying Jesus was a false messiah, and he may be saying I'm not a false messiah, or it may be talking about his, he's faithful, he's trustworthy, and that's true. But I, I think he's going something uh, after something bigger than that. I think he is saying, look, I'm the one who determines reality. You want to know what truth is? I'm truth. I'm it. I'm totally other, the one who is supreme, and I am the one who dictates the very nature of reality itself. It's quite a claim. And then he says, I'm the one who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And again, this goes back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 22. There was a king in Israel named Hezekiah who had a servant named Eliakim. And in Isaiah 22, we are told that Eliakim is given the keys to the palace of David. And if you had the keys to the palace, it means you controlled Uh, access to the king and access to the king's treasury. It it, it meant you were the one with authority. You were the one in control. You were the one who was dictating even how the king would operate. That's what the keys are. Uh, When my kids were little, we had five kids and we had this big van that we would drive around every place. And when all the kids were together and we got home, there was a mad dash to the door of the van. They'd come around and they'd try to grab my keys because whoever got my keys were the first ones to get in the door and if you were the first one to get in the door, you got to control who turned on the TV and if you were the first one to turn on the TV, you could control what we watched. So it was this mad dash, you know, and if it wasn't TV, it was the first one in the bathroom or the first one on the couch. But having the keys meant everything because it put you in a position of authority. What Jesus is saying, look, I want you to remember, I'm the one in charge. This is my world. I dictate reality, and I hold the keys to everything. It's like life is this novel, and Jesus is the author of the novel, he dictates the setting, he dictates the action, he dictates the characters, he, he dictates the conversation, he dictates the plot, he, he controls it all because it's his story, it's his book. And nothing catches him by surprise because he's the holy true one with the keys. Folks, it doesn't matter what happens in the culture, or how broken the world is, or how dark things become. Jesus still is in charge. And I think we need to remember that. Do you know, he already knows who's gonna win the election. It is not gonna catch him by surprise. Not one bit. We may be all nervous and uptight and concerned and worried, He's not. He's already got this all figured out. It's not like he's stepping off the throne. (laughs) We get nervous. I was uh, in a Bible study with Mark Young, who is the president of Denver Seminary, and he made this statement he was looking at First Peter chapter 2 verses 11 through 17 that talks about our relationship with government and he made this statement that I found fascinating he said the most important thing about this election is not who you vote for on November 8th it's how you respond to who wins on November 9th and I thought about that and I realized he's absolutely right and then he began to talk more about First Peter chapter two and he said, you know, there it tells us that we're foreigners and aliens. Our citizenship really isn't in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're just passing through, okay? And as we pass through, we have an obligation on how we respond to those in charge. And if you go there, it tells you that uh, we are to submit to the king We are to respect the king. We are to honor the king. You see, and the question then becomes on November 9th, whoever wins, are we going to honor the king? Will we honor them with what we say? Will we honor them with what we post on Facebook? Will we honor them with the jokes we tell? And the humor we use, will we honor them in private and in public? And to be quite honest with you, the evangelical movement has not done a good job of honoring the king. Not at all. Not at all. And the reason... (laughs) You say, Nick, how, how can we submit to somebody that we disagree with? Uh, do you have any idea what the Caesars were like? Any idea? Any idea? <laughs> I mean, if he was telling them to submit, to respect and honor Caesar, uh, Hillary or Trump won't be a problem. Really? You see, and the reason we can honor the king is because we know that the one who's truly in charge, who dictates reality, who is supreme above all, who has the keys to the universe, is Jesus Christ. And that puts it all in perspective. So the first thing we need to do in a world falling apart is remember who Jesus is. The second thing we need to do is to walk through his open doors... Look with me at verse eight. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know what you have, little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now the question, when you come to this, is what what does he really mean by open door? And I think the phrase, an open door, meant to them the same thing it means to us. It's just an opportunity. It's a door that you can go through. And it's fascinating to look at how it's used in Scripture. Sometimes he's speaking specifically about an evangelistic opportunity. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, in the book of Acts, Paul talks about God opening doors so that he can take the gospel to other places and other cities and other countries. And, uh, you know, is he going to go through that open door? And that understanding fits well with the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was established by one of the kings of Pergamum as a missionary city for the Greek culture. Uh, um, they, they established this city so that it could infiltrate Lydia and Phrygia, the two countries in the region where the city was located, so it can infiltrate that region with the Greek language and the Greek culture and the Greek way of thinking and the Greek religion. It was this, it was a gateway city. And I think Perhaps Jesus is picking up on some of that. Hey, I, 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 a church in Philadelphia, you, you, you got an open door to make an impact and a difference for the gospel. But I, I don't think he's limited to simply evangelistic opportunities. I I think when he's talking about keys, keys are typically associated with a kingdom. And I think he's saying, look, I'm gonna open opportunities for you to further my kingdom. Sometimes it's advancing the gospel. Sometimes it's standing up for justice. Sometimes it's just infiltrating the culture with my agenda. The up there coming down here. He's opening doors in the midst of this culture and this world that's crumbling. Now, the question you want to ask is why? Why is he opening doors for this church to make a difference in the world? Let me tell you why he's not doing it. He's not doing it because they're particularly influential, he's not doing it because they're large. He's not doing it because they have political power. He's not doing it because they're rich. He's not doing it because this church is made up of the best and the brightest. He's not doing it because they're, they're educated. He's not doing it because they're part of the in crowd. He's not doing it because their network worked well in the city. He's not doing it because they're the influential ones. None of that is true. This is a church of servants and slaves. we we think that's the key you know human power and ingenuity and influence and networks and education and leader and all that stuff is the key not the key in fact he he tells them if we could go back to the verse for a minute he tells them why he says look i know that you have little strength <laughs> The word for strength is the word dunamis. It's the word we get our word dynamite from. He says, I look at your church, and man, there's not many fireworks going on. You're not really all that impressive from a world perspective. Yet, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here's why. You've been faithful. And if you're faithful... I can do amazing things through you. Amazing things through you. I uh, like this passage because I think it confronts us with two of the things we're tempted to do in response to the world being broken, right? the first temptation when the world is so broken is the temptation to disengage, right? To, to say it's becoming so bad out there, I need to pull back and protect mine and my own and my family and my tribe. Because that, that, that it's becoming a dangerous place. I mean, I might get hurt or at least get tainted. So, so we'll just step back and create our own little world and operate, and the church in that kind of mindset becomes a fortress. And Jesus said, "No, you, you can't. You can't become a fortress. I've got these doors that I'm opening up for you, for you to engage your world and your culture and your community uh, for the kingdom. Don't, don't you dare! Don't you dare disengage! Don't you dare hide out! Don't you dare isolate yourselves from the world at large because you're scared." That's not an option. Do you know what the other temptation is? The other temptation is to say, well, you know, if we can just get power and influence, if we can just, if we can elect the right guys to office, if we can control who is president and who gets the Senate and who gets on that Supreme Court, you know, then we'll be in charge and we, we can make God's kingdom come just by our political power. That'll work. Let me tell you folks, it doesn't work. The kingdom never comes by political might. That's the lie the disciples believed. Well, Jesus, you're going to set up the, you're going to throw out the Romans, right? You're going to set up the, 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 the kingdom now and we're going to be in charge. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to the cross and dying. Wait, wait, wait. How, how does that work? not political might that God needs to bring about his kingdom. It's faithful people who live out their lives in all the little and subversive ways, in a cruciform form of life, in a crucified form of life, in a life that's given up to service and love and compassion that's the question you see the question isn't how will we use our political muscle the question is will we be faithful in the little doors that God opens for us in light of his kingdom will we be faithful when we have the the door of compassion will, will, will we be faithful when we're presented with a door that lets us love the marginal will we be faithful to speak the truth with grace when we're confronted with air? Will we we be faithful when we have the opportunity to talk about the reality of Jesus with our neighbor or our co-worker? Will we be, be faithful with the resources God has given us in terms of being radically generous in all kinds of little kingdom ways to further his agenda in the world? Will we be faithful in the ordinary, everyday mundane details of life that God is going to use subversively to make the up there come down here. That's the issue. It's not our political might or our influence or our Great networks, or all the things we think—it's just our faithfulness and God's power working through our faithfulness. So, how do we deal with a world falling apart? We remember who Jesus is. We we walk through the open doors, and lastly. We believe the promises. We hold on to his promises. Now, in this letter to this church in Philadelphia, he, he gives uh, a number of promises, three of them. A promise of vindication, uh, a promise of protection, and a, a promise of security. So let's look at them. first vindication, uh, verse 9. He says, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet in the knowledge that I have loved you. What was happening in Philadelphia a lot of the believers came out of a Jewish background and they embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And when they embraced Jesus as the Messiah, they continued to, to be part of the synagogue. But the synagogue didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought he was a false Messiah, so they would kick these people out and basically told them, now, if you think Jesus is your Messiah, then God really doesn't love you. He doesn't really care about you because you're, you're in error. You're following after the wrong guy. And he's making this promise, you know, the day's going to come when they're going to have to admit that Jesus was the Messiah, that, 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 that you were right. You'll be vindicated. I have a good friend who's a missionary who decided to go to a very difficult place. And one time he was home on furlough, and he was talking with his brother, and his brother wasn't very supportive of my friend's decision be a missionary. And his brother began to go after him. He said, you know, you're wasting your life. You're in a place where it's really hard on you, and it's really hard on your wife, and it's really hard on your kids, and nobody even notices you're you're there, and you're not making any difference, and, and you're certainly not getting paid anything. You're just you're just wasting your life. What, what are you doing? And my friend was telling me this. I mean, he was just hurt. And as he's, he's telling me this, I, I began to think, wait. The day is going to come when everything is turned upside down. And my friend, your brother's going to realize that that moment that you made the best investment anybody could make with their life. And that all the things he thought were important, the money and the notoriety and the big splash and the comfort, mean nothing. But what you invested in means everything. That day is coming. It's coming. So vindication. The, the second promise is one of protection in verse 10. It says this, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of the trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the ha- inhabitants of the earth. Coming soon, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Do, do you know verse 10 is the probably the most debated verse in the whole book of Revelation? Really? Yeah. Um, Because there's people out here in in the world who think that this verse determines whether you should be pre-trib or post-trib, whether you believe that the tribulation is coming and God takes his church out before it comes, or you're one of those people who believe that God takes the church out, out after it comes. And they all argue on this verse, which is amazing to me. Um, it all has to do with this notion, I will keep you from. Does that mean to keep you from or to take you out, keep you out of the hour of trial that's coming on in the whole world? And of course, the trial means the tribulation. Everybody knows that. Um, so, this is a determinant verse. You want my honest opinion? I don't think this verse has anything to do with the tribulation, not one iota. I, I mean, if you wanna argue on the tribulation, that's fine, but don't, don't go here, go other places, right? Because remember when we started this whole study, the book of Revelation, we said whatever our interpretation of the verse is, it has to mean something to the original audience. If this verse is about the tribulation that's gonna happen before the second coming of Christ, uh, uh, 2,000 years from the moment it was written, at least 2016 years, um, was that really helpful to the church in Philadelphia? I mean, he's saying, hey, guys, I want you to be comforted. I want you to know when the great tribulation comes, and when I'm coming back 2,000 and at least 16 years from now, I'm going to take the church out of that before the trial comes. I know you'll be dead for a long time, but I want you to find great comfort in that. <laughs> I'm sorry. We fight about the stupidest things. We do. We do. Look, his point in this verse is I want you to understand, I've got your back. And, and, and when things go badly, when you're in the midst of a trial, I mean, even if it's trial, the whole world, I'm going to be there with you. Some of you may escape it because you're going to die. If you don't, I'm going to be there right with you through it. I've got your back. Because remember, I'm the one who wrote the novel. Remember, I'm the holy, true one who has the keys. Trust me. I'll take care of you. You'll be okay. My purpose will be achieved in you and through you. I'm coming soon, so hold on. So vindication, protection, and the last one is security. And you see that in verse 12. At first reading, this doesn't make much sense to us. But when you understand the background, it, it begins to. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of the heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Philadelphia was a city that was built in a volcanic zone. Um, if you were there, you knew the soil was incredibly rich because of the ashes from the volcanic activity, which made it great for agriculture, but also made it a dangerous place to live. In AD 17, Philadelphia uh, was destroyed by a volcanic eruption. And it was so bad that there continued to be all kinds of aftershocks after the eruption. And uh, they wanted to rebuild the city, but were having trouble, so the Rome, Uh, forgave their taxes for five years so that they could rebuild. But because of the aftershocks uh, um, that would rumble through the city, people moved out of the city because it wasn't safe. If you were in the city, you never knew what was going to happen. If an aftershock came, the buildings were still falling down, you could be crushed by a stone. So he says, you know, never again will they leave leave it. Uh, They had set up the city outside of the city so that they could survive. So you 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 won't have to do that. There's nothing that's going to shake the world. The time's gonna come. And then this notion of pillar, if you were a priest in a temple and had been faithful, when you died, oftentimes they would put up a pillar in that temple to honor you. And on that pillar, they would put your name and the name of your father as kind of this legacy. And and that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, I'm gonna erect this pillar. You're never gonna have to go out of the city. And on that pillar is going to be the name of the new city, and my name. It's like he's saying, I'm going to brand you as mine. That's your identity. You're mine. So we have this ultimate security. I think all three of these promises relate to, to, to the great truth that the book of Revelation teaches us. Do, do you know what the bottom line is for the book of Revelation? What, what, what its main point is, it's two words, right? God wins. That's the point. And, and Jesus is saying here, you know, if you're on my side, I'm winning. You'll be vindicated. You'll be protected. You'll be secure. Because I win. I'm coming back. And when I come back, I will make all things right. Right. So trust me. Even if the world around you is falling apart, trust me. October 1991, there was the remnants of uh, cold fronts moving across the eastern shoreboard and the remains of a hurricane coming up from the south and those two things uh, collided to form what we know of as the perfect storm. The Andrea Gale, a boat in the north, was struggling using all its might and technology and ingenuity and everything it had, trying to survive. In the south, there was a little girl practicing her backfloat. John... And Mary, Mary's the little girl who was six years old, and her dad, John, had decided to go sailing. They were from Philadelphia, and they were going sailing off the Jersey Shore. John had not checked the weather forecast before they left. They were six miles out, and suddenly uh, the weather changed, and the winds came up, and they came up really quickly, and John could not believe how strong... They were, and before they knew it, the boat had been capsized. They had been thrown into the water. The wind was pushing the boat away. The life jackets were still attached to the boat. They couldn't reach them. And now they're stuck six miles from the shore with no life jackets in the middle of this coming storm. John does not know what to do. And he decides the only option he has is to swim for shore. But he knows that he can't swim to shore holding on to his daughter. So he looks at his daughter and he tells her, she's six years old, he says, Mary, I want you to float on your back for as long as you can. Remember, Mary, we, we practice this in the pool at home. You know how to float on your back. I want you to float on your back for as long as you can. Because I'm going to swim to shore. And then I'm going to come back for you. So John swam for shore. And Mary floated on her back. Three hours later, the Coast Guard picked up John, exhausted but alive. He told him his daughter was six miles out, so they began a search. And they looked, and they looked. For an hour and a half, they looked. And eventually, they found this little girl in their spotlight, bobbing up and down in the ocean in these 20 to 30 foot swells. And they got her. One of the guardsmen asked Mary, Mary, how did you do this? And she said, well, my daddy told me to float on my back as long as I could. And he told me he would come back for me. And my daddy always does what he says. The Andrea Gale fought with all its might and human effort and technology and expertise and sank. And little Mary practiced her back float and beat the storm of the century. You see, Jesus is telling this, this church in Philadelphia, little church, I know you're not very strong, but I create great opportunities for you. You just need to be faithful. Don't deny my name. Remember I'm who I am. Remember to walk through the doors I give you and trust me because the truth is I'm coming back. Just believe me, I always do what I say. Always. Let's pray.